You listen to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts of the Bellator Christie Podcast, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Avalon. Coming to you from the mystic, majestic mountains of northwestern North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. My name is Dr. Brian Shilton, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes to an hour that we have together. And if you're new to the Bellator Christie podcast, uh, we discuss issues of theology, biblical studies, church history, philosophy, and a host of other topics related to Christian truth and theology. Uh, Tonight we kick off a brand new season as we begin Season 7. Season 7 will look a little different from previous seasons. However, I believe that this could very well be the best season yet. We have a host of guests who will be with us uh, this year. Among our guests include Bellator Christie's own uh, Dr. T.J. Gentry, Dr. Michelle Johnson, Dr. Deanna Huff, and Dr. Leo Purser, newly added to the Bellator Christie family. Uh, We'll also have Dr. Mark Phillips from Tri-State Bible College and Dr. Benjamin Laird, Uh, I guess that's how you say his name, Laird from Liberty University, among many others. If you're wondering about our co-host, the Cowboy Apologist, Curtis Evelo, he's still with us, uh, but he'll assume a new role with us this year. Uh, He's going to host his own segment called The Question Zone at the end of each month. On these episodes, Curtis will ask questions that he and others may have about various topics covered that month. And additionally, these episodes will cover any pressing current events that may be that may need to be discussed. Uh, Curtis and I will also this season uh, have a new segment called the Winter Bible Study Series this January and February. And this year we're going to dive into the marvelous book of Galatians. I can't wait. Uh, this is a series that you will not want to miss. Season seven will be an exciting time for Bellator Christie podcast, and we hope that you'll join us uh, for a very compelling series. Uh, Now, let's turn our attention to tonight's episode. Uh, Anyone that has uh, not had their head stuck in the sand for the past 20, 30 years uh, knows that the American church is in dire straits. Uh, Many denominations in America are crumbling from internal and external uh, problems and theological debates. Additionally, many churches are struggling to get back to their pre-COVID numbers. A number of churches, even in our area, uh, have closed due to internal and external struggles, financial problems, uh, lack of attendees, you name it. Many families no longer uh, see the need to contend church services, some due to problems that are plaguing the church these days. Amid these problems, the church finds itself with a pastoral workforce that is becoming increasingly disenfranchised with ministry, resulting in burnout and leading many to leave the ministry altogether. One statistic shows that some 37 to 38 percent of pastors currently serving in ministry have seriously contemplated leaving. The COVID-19 pandemic stressed pastors in ways that they were not prepared for. 
In a recent article, a pastor of a Presbyterian denomination announced that he was leaving the ministry after serving some 30 plus years. As he put it, he was tired of working for what he called 1,000 bosses. Congregants are panicking as they want to see growth and often compare their local pastors to their favorite celebrities on television. Yet it is more and more difficult to encourage people to attend church, especially millennials and Gen Zers. Uh, the, the many individuals in these generations have more and more people identifying themselves as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that is those with no church or religious affiliation. This has led to what many church analysts have called the, the pastoral exodus. The pastoral exodus leads to additional problems for the church, resulting in a lack of qualified candidates available to fill the pulpits, fewer youth entering the ministry, and a diminishing pool of individuals for pastor search committees to consider. Thus, pastoral burnout is not only an issue for pastors, rather it's an issue that impacts everyone in the church. Yes. So the question is, how do we resolve pastoral burnout? Well, our guest today has some insights that could very well help this situation. We want to welcome Dr. Josh Taylor with us tonight. Dr. Taylor is an ordained minister and pastors Mount Carmel Baptist Church in DeMorris, Georgia. He holds degrees in pastoral ministry from Toccoa Falls College, Christian apologetics from Biola University, wonderful university at that. Yes. <laughs> Get a big old amen there. And a doctor of ministry and biblical preaching from Anderson University in South Carolina. Uh, he is married to Mandy, and they have two kids, Scotland and Hayden. Uh, Dr. Taylor is the author of the book, and I want to encourage you to get this book, my friends. When I when I published my book, Conversations About Heaven, I saw this. I was telling Josh this a while ago. I saw this, and I thought, I've got to get this book. Is he's, he's, he's authored a book called A Preach Well Church, How Churches Can Stop Burning Out Their Pastors. So we want to welcome Dr. Josh Taylor with us today. Dr. Taylor, thank you for being on with us. On the it is my uh, yes. privilege and honor to be with you, really. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So let's just dive right into this. Okay. What is the main premise of your book, A Preach Well Church? Well, first of all, in your introduction there, you nailed uh, just the, the atmosphere, the climate of the pastoral condition that's going on, at least in evangelical America, Protestant uh, pastors. Uh, my contention in my book is, and to be, to be frank, I started from the perspective when I did this research for my uh, doctoral ministry capstone project just to identify any stressors to the pastorate with the assumption that um, because I find preaching, uh, as James Earl Massey said, to be a burdensome joy. It's an awesome privilege uh, I like what Matt Brunson said one time. He says, uh, they pay, I, I preach for free. They pay me to do the rest. And I think that's a great way to think about it is that most pastors really enjoy preaching and proclaiming God's word. That's not to say that it's, it's that it is an easy task. It's a very difficult task. My assumption or hypothesis going in was that I would find, uh, stressors related to, the preaching. And what you find is almost the exact opposite, at least among the, 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 the men in the pastorate that I uh, surveyed was you almost get this sense that if only I could focus on sermon preparation and preaching, 
uh, that would be a delight in my ministry. And yet, ironically, you almost have the church of God pulling the man of God away from the pulpit constantly. And so the, the premise of my book is actually how to help churches prioritize the preaching of God's word. And what you'll find as a significant benefit on the side is if you can let that man let, let preaching dominate his ministry, not be the only thing he does. I'm not saying that, but to have the chief of his time, energy, and resources, I think you'll see the pastoral burnout numbers decrease. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find uh, a, a man called into ministry who is going, uh, I am burning out because of the pulpit and because of prayer ministry. You won't find that man. Uh, in fact, he's burned out everywhere else. And uh, I think it takes a radical reorientation of the, of the church's understanding and vision of the pastorate with preaching and praying, regaining the preeminence and priority for the pastor. And, and that is a church-wide effort, Brian. That is not something that just one man alone, like the pastor, will be able to impose on the church. It takes the, the whole congregation to get on board with that vision in order for it to be uh, helpful and biblical. I agree wholeheartedly. And you look at our culture, you know, there have been studies talking about biblical illiteracy uh, skyrocketing in America. Mm-hmm. And the way to combat that is what you're talking about, biblical preaching to, to, to really train people to teach them the word of God, to proclaim the saith the Lord. So yes. I think you're really onto something here. Well, and, and I, I promise, like, I can really say I, I love preaching, but my bias uh, towards it was more inclined to think, oh, this must be a real, uh, almost a distraction. And it's just the exact opposite. I think most men would tell you that's, that occupy these senior pastorate and solo pastorate, whether they're full-time or bivocational, is there, and the, the Saturday night specials are probably more common than they would ever care to acknowledge, you know? And, uh, if they, they would be saying this, if only I could spend more time in the word of God and in prayer for my, for my ministry and my people, that would alleviate tons of burden on them. But in fact, they're being ran ragged with all these other um, and, and things that are important. I'm not saying they're necessarily bad. I'm just talking about a radical reorienting of our priorities. That's what I'm asking for. Well, and I think I think what you're saying, too, is very biblical because, you know, when the, the first implementation of deacons in Acts chapter six, six was to provide the pastors an opportunity to focus on preaching and prayer. So you said this, this to people. That text is so important because I think the elders and pastors of the church have inherited the apostles a ministry of the word from Acts chapter six. It's our responsibility to lead the church in that. And just imagine this, Brian, and I submit this to you with gentleness and respect and to any of my, our lay members that would be listening to this podcast. I've just said this and I say it jokingly, but it's because there's some truth in it that makes it bite is if Baptist ministers, especially got up in their pulpits and told people, it's not right for us to put down the word in order to serve widows, they'd be fired right there on the spot. 
you know, and that came out of the apostles' mouths, the very people who saw Jesus's ministry to the poor and the mar- marginalized. But you find time and time again, two things. They continue to assert their unique calling as proclaimer of God, proclaimers of God's word. That's not to say no one else could do it, but they were uniquely called and equipped to lead the church in that. But then number two is what we have to remember with our people. We as Baptists and those who are a part of Protestantism and evangelicalism, we believe in the priesthood of believers that these members are filled with the same Holy Spirit that empowers us, and we ought to be releasing them for ministry in the local church. And the apostles looked at the seven assistants there and had no problem saying, these men are more than capable of overseeing this ministry. And what a relief that is. And so we have to get back to that apostolic ingenuity in Acts chapter 6. What I'm proposing is nothing new. It's old as the church is. It's just we've gotten away from that. And we've inherited this traditional mindset of essentially the pastor does everything. We pay him and outsource our righteousness to him. This ought not be. Amen. <laughs> You're on to something very powerful here, my friend. Good. Very powerful indeed. Well, in your first chapter, you mentioned panic attacks that often accompany burnout. Mm-hmm. What are some of the main factors behind pastoral burnout and this anxiety that you mentioned? So I would say it this way. I view, when I did my study, I see uh, depression, anxiety, and burnout as three completely separate categories. They may or may not be comorbid. Okay, so just because in my instances I had panic attacks, that's not necessarily the indication that someone's burned out. Okay, so you see what I'm saying? If anything, my panic attacks were more associated with my just generalized anxiety than it had to do with anything with burnout. And so I wouldn't say that's a like I wouldn't tell a person if you're having a panic attack, therefore, ergo burnout. It may or may not may or may not be. Burnout by definition, which is, it's really an incredible concept to think about that just in 2019 was burnout put into the World Health Organization's official diagnosis. People can actually be diagnosed with burnout. It's not something you would think about. And it really has to relate to, I use two alliterated things because I'm a pastor, right? Is uh, (laughs) emotional exhaustion and job jadedness. That's how I tend to think about it. And it tends to happen with people who are in um, helping people professions, people professions. So it wouldn't just be pastors. This could be teachers, you know, in your public school systems, uh, officers, uh, your lawmen, um, anybody who's having to interact closely with the needs of the public. So it's across the board. Now, if you're a pastor, I mean, you cannot do your if. If we could just seal ourselves off, that's not pastoral ministry, right? You would be abdicating the call. So pastors are going to be where the needs are. That's just going to happen. The difference is what can happen is, I think, two things. Because people have a good pastor is approachable. A good pastor is someone you do bring your needs to. So I'm not saying people ought not do that. But if this pastor doesn't take the time for rest, relaxation, rejuvenation, the emotional exhaust 
exhaustion imposed on him by the demands of his people. I don't mean they're commanding him. I'm just meant by the sheer needs of his people. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually wear on him mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That's all we're saying. And so there has to come a time where he can practice Sabbath. There has to come a time where he can roll the needs of his people onto other well-equipped men in his congregation. Uh, That's all that we're arguing for. And what I think happens with men who burn out, they've carried this burden for so long. I think they finally just go, somebody else just take this. I'm out of here. And I think that's happening by and large. And your introduction nailed it. We were already on that route. COVID just exponentially took care of the rest. If you were if you were on the fence, it just went ahead and pushed you right on over. Oh, and, uh, yeah, I just have great sympathy for all these men. Uh, I, were you in reference to Alexander Lang's uh, uh, article about the Presbyterian minister? Was that him? PC. I think it. I think it was. I think it's him. Yeah. Uh, I I read his article and I go, you'll be surprised, Brian, if you read it. There were people on both sides of the aisle about Lane. They were like, we completely get it. Or you had people that were like, suck it up, buttercup. And I'm sitting there going like, guys, his voice is actually, I think, a lot larger among pastors than people ever realize. That's not the minority voice. I think there's a lot of men who could read Lane's article and go, I know what he's talking about. Yeah, you think about it too. You know, I've often heard it put caregiver burnout because whenever you're caring for people, you're helping people. Um, quite honestly, it's been an observation that people in the healthcare industry have made that, that those who are caregivers generally take the least care of themselves because they're 100%. so much time and effort helping other people. They don't care for themselves as the way they should. Yeah. And I think sometimes that happens. Well, there goes the weather alert system. Apologize for that. Oh, you're good. You're fine. <laughs> that was going to happen. We got a storm <laughs> in the area. Understood. Well, someone's listening to the podcast and we're, we're awake now. <laughs> Before yeah, they are now. Yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, um, but the whole the whole point is, is I think the same thing happens when it comes to uh, pastoral ministry. We're expending our time, our, our energies to help other people. Yeah. And so, you know. And, and, I think about this. I've tried to say this with gentleness, respect to my brother pastors. We say we're not people pleasers, hogwash. If we, we want our people to have mutual love for us. We want to feel the same love from them that we have toward them. And I can't tell you some of the most hurtful things that you go through as a pastor. is just when you have to look at somebody and tell them no. I think it was Spurgeon. I think it always gets attributed to Spurgeon, but it it could be anybody. He was like, the one Greek word you have to know in pastoral ministry is no. (laughs) I just think that's that's great because it's it's really difficult because we've been told when we take up this calling and mantle to put ourselves last. I'm completely sympathetic with that. But there actually comes a time where that uh, attitude and philosophy can only go so far to you're going to cut your ministry short. Uh, one of my favorite stories that I tell people was early on in my ministry, I had an opportunity to sit down with uh, Clayton King. He's an evangelist here in the South. Some some people are, are know him. And we were in his uh, living room, 12 other guys he was mentoring for public evangelism. And 
it was so interesting because we're sitting there and we're, we're, we're thinking, here we are, we're going to find out how to book us some gigs. That's what we were saying. And the first two things that came out of Clayton King's mouth was number one, right? He said, if you lose your health, you lose your ministry. And it's, man, and when you're 25, 26 or whatever, you just kind of brush it off. And then the second thing he said was, uh, you can do ministry with a wife, but you can't do ministry against one. And yeah, that's very good. And, and what that's, I, very good. that's very good. And what I keep trying to tell people is like, the older I get, the more I go back to that same story and those two things going, if you lose your health, it's you're done. You, you've got to, it's just a marathon, not a sprint. And then if you lose your marriage, we're the only job. If, if somebody can think of, of a different career, you call it out. But we're the only uh, job that you have to win at home in order to keep your job. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. Every other kind of career, your home life can be abysmal. Well, that's not going to affect. As long as it doesn't affect your job performance, keep come on in. Uh, <laughs> if I mess up with my wife and kids, they should show me the door at my church, right? Uh, so it's just a it's a it's a different beast altogether when it comes to pastoral ministry. And I love pastoral ministry, but it's not without its pressures and burdens. Absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that um <laughs> he's probably gonna throw a tomato at me knowing that I brought his name up on the podcast. <laughs> we I won't tell. <laughs> But I'm going to do it anyhow. Uh, a good friend of mine, he uh, works in the EMS uh, in, a, in a local area, and he's a transport manager. His name's Tim Darnell. And he told me something. It's a very good point. It's, it's a key critical point of, of EMS or any first responder. The, the question is, the, the point is, is, the first person you take care of is yourself and your partner. Because yeah. if you don't, and you're involved in the accident yourselves. Guess what? You're going to, have to call 911 and get some other responders to come help you along That's with the good. trying to help. And yeah. I thought about that with pastoral ministry. And I think there's a good life principle in pastoral ministry that if you don't care for yourself and your family, it's going to be impossible for you to be able to care for the needs of the people in your congregation. I'm going to steal that and I'll cite Darnell, right? Uh, but that's excellent. The, the other one that I think about before Tim Keller passed, I watched a video of him talking about this very subject. And he talks about it's very akin to yours. It's the idea of when the plane's going down and the mask drops, you know, they tell you, don't put it on your kids first. You've got to breathe in order to be cognizant enough to help anybody else. And, and all I think when we hear self-care, we think of it inordinate uh, orientation and affection towards self that's antithetical to Christ's call to pick up our cross and die. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when Jesus says, like, love your neighbor as yourself. This, what you would, I mean, think about how many pastors that if, if they, if they came walking into their own study to receive counseling, what that pastor would tell to them. And then we don't even take our own advice when it comes to burnout and anxiety. Like, we're like, we'll just run ourselves into the ground. Jesus is coming soon. And hopefully he comes back before I burn out. You know, and that's just, that's not the attitude that we're to adopt. Um, and so, and I think Clayton, what Clayton had said earlier was, and I think he's right. I think the fruit of a long ministry, a lifelong ministry is, is better, more fruitful 
than a short stint of being burnt out. Now the Lord, I mean, I, I mean, the Lord could call us to that type, but I do think he wants us being faithful to him over the long haul. And that's what we're trying. We're trying to say, basically you're ministering each week with, you know, not eternity in mind, but even just hopefully that we could be minister ministering as uh, elders uh, Mm -hmm. in our churches. So that's, that's the part I would have to say this though. If in the book, I write about this, that the equation for pastoral burnout in particular is really two things. Well, three, but it's, it's two. It's really church members, unrealistic, unbiblical expectations that they've, a lot of them just have inherited. They've, that's what they think a pastor's supposed to do. Then second, a lack of perspective. And that lack of perspective could be the pastor's own lack of perspective about what he's supposed to be doing. He may just think, well, I just do whatever they tell me to do. That's not right. Mm -hmm. And then if you get a really vocal, critical congregation who doesn't mind telling you week after week (laughs) or business meeting after business meeting uh, where you're falling short, that man will not make it at that church long. Those are the three things in particular, unbiblical, unrealistic expectations, a lack of perspective, and a really vocal, critical congregation. Uh, that's that's like the recipe for disaster on a man. And that's something I, I hope and pray that that church leaders, congregants, everyone involved with a local church will, will take to heart because we want healthy churches. We want mm-hmm. healthy pastors. We want healthy ministries. And if you have all of these things brewing in a congregation, it, it's going to lead to short ministry from the pastor and could very well lead to a church split if it yeah. if it's unresolved. Well, think about it. And this is true. I've seen this in my own church, Brian, that I, I can tell that a lot of my most effective leadership and influence has come around years five, six, seven, you know, yeah. If you don't make it, if most pastors are out at year three and four, how does that affect the long-term health of the church? See, so it, it's it's symbiotic going, if you can uh, create a healthy culture for your pastor, he'll create a healthy culture for your church. They both thrive. That's what we're asking for. Absolutely. But yeah, you need to be suspicious of any church that could keep churning through ministers every two to three years. Something's up. Very true. So what are the seven commitments you challenge churches to take in order to become a preach well church? Okay. And what I love about these, these are really simple and you can, um, you can go overboard on these depending on your ability, both time resources financially. But, but I really can tell you, I think if you're a lay member of a church, you can do the seven things and you may not have, you may say, well, this is like common sense, but you wouldn't believe it's not that common. I mean, you know the world we live in today. Yeah. So my seven things, number one, is what I call the control commitment. And that simply means to relinquish control over your pastor's schedule. What mm-hmm. I'm finding, and it's often due to a, just a simple lack of understanding, you said this in your introduction, which is good, about the thousand bosses. If you're a Baptist minister, your congregation pretty much serves as your boss or board. Whether you may you may uh, speak to your chairman of deacons or a personnel member, but at the end of the day, the group that hired you and the group that'll fire you is the congregation in its totality, right? Because of our polity. Well, 
when you think about this, there's a lot of people who sit in our churches with gentleness, respect. They've never been a boss in their entire life, you know, and all of a sudden here they are and they actually can hire and fire this guy. And what you'll find is most people, they have a really uh, bounded shift. You know, you go in at nine o'clock, you get off at five or whatever it may be. If you're a pastor, every pastor knows this going, I only wish I could clock in at nine and clock out at five and not even think about it. Okay. And I'm not saying that those who work shifts aren't working hard. The problem is, is so when a church member's out at the grocery store and they see their pastor out there too, they go, well, he's not working. You know what they don't realize. And I've had this happen, right? I'm going to be at the church from seven to 10 o'clock tonight, you Mm -hmm. know, doing a meeting or having a Bible study. So it's the fact that most pastors uh, ministry, they don't fit in the regular nine to five. And if you want to keep him in some sense of uh, that, it's not going to work. You're going to already have an expectation out of him that the very ministry is going to put him outside of it, right? Because you just ministry. I would love to say all ministry happens from nine to five Sunday through Thursday, and it just doesn't. And so once you acknowledge that, then give him some leeway when it comes to his schedule, right? The second one's the expectations commitment. And I would just say this, I would encourage uh, whoever oversees the pastor. And and usually in most Baptist churches, it's some form of like a a deacon's board, a uh, more of accountability. That's what I'm trying to say. Deacon board, a personnel committee, a finance committee, whoever's doing that. I would encourage them that every year, one time a year, they sit down and they either pull out a job description or if they have constitutions, bylaws, a staff handbook, something, and ask their pastor, literally it's slotted across to him to say, pastor, what on here are you getting done by yourself? What on here are you not getting done at all? What on here do you need help getting done? Mm-hmm. And just, and here's the thing, if you already make an annual appointment to do that, it's a lot easier to deal with than letting everything bull bull up. You know, nobody's talking. He's think he's doing a phenomenal job. The church is over there about to have a vote of confidence on the poor guy. When some of the expectations just need to be clearly communicated just to one another and, and let the pastor voice when he goes, well, I don't think that's my responsibility or I really need help to do that. Uh, there would be a lot that would just be solved if you'd have significant lay leaders who would sit down at least once a year and just review, you know, just review what we're expecting of you. Uh, third, the appointment commitment. And I know this, this pastors will differ on this, but if you are able to have a dedicated time in your week to sermon prep, then encourage your congregation during those times to if at all costs to avoid interrupting you and to make an appointment for some other time. Uh, and the reason being emergencies are going to come up. I'm not saying they're not, they will, but if it's a non emergency, at least I found this in my own life and I've seen it in other men's lives when they can train their congregation to make an appointment, two things happen. Sermon prep requires long uh, extended time for meditation, prayer, uh, and study. You can't do that if you're being interrupted every hour, every other hour. 
Secondly, I have found myself, and I think any man can do this, they're more present when they know I'm here with you and I have an appointment with you and my sermon prep is either done or I have a time set aside to do it. I'm not thinking about, because Sunday's always coming. Sunday's always coming. Sunday's always coming. So just make an appointment, whether that's a lot of my people on Sunday, when they see me, they'll say, hey, are you free Thursday for lunch or something like that? Instead of just dropping by on me. And the next thing you know, your day's blown up and any kind of momentum you had in study is just done. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, then fourth is the honor commitment, which basically I would just tell churches like your care of that man and his family should reflect your um, concern for the preaching of God's word. OK. And if, most of the time, if you ask congregants, good, good church going people, they're going to say we love God's word. Well, then honor the man handling God's word. I don't mean you got to put him on a pedestal. Right. Um, but God has said that those who preach the gospel can live by the gospel. We don't get to change like the church. It's not on the church to tell the man you will live poorly. That's not, that's not the church's responsibility. But he can decide to do that. What we're decided. I, I like how one lady in our church, uh, we're responsible to be worthy, right, to, to work hard and be worthy of our pay. They're responsible to pay. And so when I say honor him, it's not just respect. I meant take care of his family. It, a, a man who can't take care of his family, according to the Bible, is worse than an infidel. And yet many churches put the pastor in that situation. He can't even take care of his own family. Uh, so make sure I would say every year somebody needs to sit down with him and just review like financial comps, make sure he's getting competitive pay, make sure he has health insurance. I mean, these are basic things that, again, as a congregational polity, you're the employer uh, and pastors. I'm just pastors are too afraid to advocate to, to advocate for things like pay, health care, things like that. They'll just they'll just literally rather take the bullet then speak up about it. And so if, if somebody listening tonight just does one thing and goes to their pastor and going, are you being financially taken care of? Yes or no. That's a win in my book, just for a man to advocate, a man or a woman in a church to advocate for the financial well-being of their pastor, just to ask the question, you know, uh, five would be the volunteer commitment, which is you churches have to embrace church members have to embrace discipling and visiting out of all the, it's interesting, Brian, out of all the tasks that I looked at, the anytime discipleship or visitation usurped the preaching task, there was a, a higher tick in stress. And, and all I mean by that is this, the pastor is, again, the unique proclaimer of God's word. You know your Bible, Matthew 25 and Matthew 28, all saints are called to visit the sick aid those in distress, and disciple new believers. That's, that's not something that's exclusive to the pastor. It's a shared responsibility. Okay. And so anytime a member can go and make a visit, I'm not saying in my book, I'm not saying that the pastor should never visit. All I say in my book, the pastor should be the only one visiting. That is a huge problem. If yeah. the only care being done in your church is by the pastor. There should be teams of people. Deacons should be visiting. I hope that by the time I get there, I have other members who've already been there to see people. 
And that people don't realize the type of margin that gives for a pastor when he knows he's not going to be the only one that's going to show up at the bedside, you know, and then uh, discipling as well. He, he can't not disciple every new member. He cannot do that. That's got to be something that it's at every member ministry. And the other thing that I found is also telling people, it's okay if you get a visit from another member and you haven't seen the pastor yet. A lot of people, it's actually the opposite. It's that they don't mind visiting. It's just, boy, he better be here. <laughs> and th- that could be just equally draining. Yeah. My point is, as long as the church is taking care of its own, you can share that responsibility. That's the biggest thing. Uh, six is the criticism commitment. I'm not saying you don't give feedback to your pastor. He needs it if he's going to grow. It's just about how you do it. I, I have found over and over again, and you know this, if you know someone loves you deeply, they're, they, they're there, they go, I want you to win, pastor. I want the church to win. You can almost hear anything from them. It's, it's, it's people that you feel like they have an ax to grind with me, whether or not this is for my good. It's almost like there's no potential for redemption. There's no hope for optimism. It's I'm here to voice a complaint because I put money in the plate and you have to endure it. Yeah. That type of criticism, oh, it is so destructive to a pastor. So if, if, like before you criticize the man, like work on loving the man, just loving him as a human being, as yeah. a brother in Christ. How can you love him? Because love, love rebukes. <laughs> no, nobody's saying love doesn't tell you hard things. We're pastors, but it's difficult to receive instruction or admonition from any brother or sister in Christ when you wonder, I don't know if they love me. I really don't. And so, so just love first. And then all that truth can come out. We really need that. And then seven is the remembrance commitment. This is a fascinating part in the book. And I read this, I think it was from a gentleman from Notre Dame that did the study that he said, when pastors uh, were having a difficult time in ministry, they had a harder time recalling their call to ministry. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. Yeah, I thought it's fine. That fascinating. And so the remembrance one is actually this is going, hey, honor your pastor. You know, like a lot of churches do pastor appreciation or something like that. But my encouragement is this every now and then ask him, tell me how God called you into ministry. Mm. Just tell me how you, God called you into ministry. You can do that over lunch. You can ask him to do it from the pulpit. And always reminding these men about God's call that sometimes can help get them through the mm-hmm. difficult times. And, and usually they'll, they'll, most men don't mind telling you about when God called them. Like, oh, I'd love to share that with you. And you wouldn't believe how you would reinvigorate a pastor by just asking, would you recall to me uh, how you got into ministry? <laughs> and just let that be in the forefront of his mind. And mm-hmm. it'll, do, it'll do him some good. So those are the seven things. It's the control commitment, the expectations commitment, the appointment commitment, the honor commitment, the volunteer commitment, the criticism commitment, the remembrance commitment. I've gave it all away. You know it all now. uh, Going back to uh, real briefly, uh, gosh, it's hard to believe times is sneaking. Yeah. But on the control commitment, Mm -hmm. I found that very fascinating. Why why do you think it is that certain people in the church or certain individuals that that, that we've grown a culture? Maybe it would be better to work this way. Why is it we've grown such a culture where individuals try to control the pastor? 
Yeah, and I don't I, the control part to me. I, I'm about, here's like my favorite line in the whole book. I'm not going to lie to you, and I because I actually will say it to myself and tell other people this. Think about this, Brian. If you trust that man to handle the word of God, you can trust him with his time. Mm-hmm. The word of God is the most precious thing that's been entrusted to pastors, even more important to their time. Mm-hmm. And if you go, this man, Sunday after Sunday, is going to handle God's precious word. But boy, we're going to have to watch him like a hawk. <laughs> it just, it don't even, it doesn't even make sense. Like, right. no, like if you, if you will let him instruct you and command you in the way of the Lord, surely. This man knows how he ought to conduct his time. I don't see how you get one without the other. And I think some of it is because, like they said, I think the vision in their mind is they think this guy's just, it's, it's, he works on Sunday. How many times have you heard that? You only work one day a week. The rest is free time. And you feel that with leisure reading, you probably spend most of your time golfing. And they don't understand, like most pastors, you go look at the stats, 70 to 75% of their time, whether full-time or bavo, will spend it getting ready for Sunday, sermon prep toward that end. And if anybody's done it more than one time, you recognize what spiritual warfare that is week after week after week. And that's just one thing that he's doing. Uh, and so the where, where I have a lot of understanding for people who want to control the pastor's time, think about it, Brian. People control what they don't know. They don't know. That's true. That's nope, true. Right? It's the unknown. They they think we're paying this man to deliver a 30-minute lecture that I'm sure he just can come. He went to seminary. Surely he could do this on a whim. And if one of the best things I try to encourage my people, go get some lay leaders, deacons, you know, potential elders type kind of people in your church. Let them preach once or twice. And you'll find out, we'll come back to going, I can't do that every week. <laughs> and it's, and, and, and it's tr- like, go, go read Lane's, that article that Lane wrote. He's like, people underestimate the hours week after week that people, that men put into this task. And that's just one thing. That's the, that's the tip of the iceberg. I always love the, the other way to think about it is too, as I think about comedians, comedians, right? They get to perfect their material and they have a different audience every time. We have the same audience week after week after week, and they want something fresh, new, challenging. I mean, just, just it's once you get into that, that rhythm that, and I call it that Sisyphus, you know, rolling the, the boulder up the hill. That's what preaching becomes. And it's a wonderful, you know, a burdensome joy, but they, the control comes from the unknown. They don't know. And that's okay. And, and who, what pastor, this is why I try to write this book and get it in people's hands. What pastor wants to get up in front of this co- a congregation and just lament about how tough his job is? Nobody wants to do that, right? So let a, let a guy like me do it going, man, you don't understand how hard this is to do what he's doing right now, you know? Well, and that may partly answer the, 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 the next question. What, what inspired you to write a Preachwell Church? Well, one, my own story about panic attacks. It's in the book. I take anxiety medicine. I, I, I'm, I'm quite open about that because it's been too hush hush for long. And, and there's, we could talk about it more, but you know, one out of every four pastors 
say they struggle with mental illness, according to LifeWay Research. That was in 2014, by the way. And then half of those have been diagnosed with an actual you know, mental illness. That's so telling like, what it is now. Who that's I would be, I mean, terrified almost to see <laughs> what those stats would be. But my point was when I had that time in my life, it made me aware of how burdensome ministry could be. And, and my point was was this. I would have said up until that point that anxiety, depression, this is all make-believe stuff. People need to get with it, suck it up, buttercup. And then when it happens to you, your your tone changes going, I am so sorry for being so wow. insensitive and not sympathetic. And so I pr- anybody who has that tone with other people, I'm just like, you just don't know. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have grace for you. But once you cross onto that other side, you realize this is terrible. Mm-hmm. And so what inspired me to write it is that's a part of my own history. And then as I was finishing my doctorate, I was bringing these thesis or coming to the end of my program and I had to do the ministry capstone project and I was given my theses and I was so kind of ashamed to even say like, I would love to know like about the stressors in pastoral ministry and its relationship to preaching. I mean, I was almost trembling talking about it and they were like, that's awesome. <laughs> you know? Like, yes, it is, you could just see people were like, yeah, we understand that's a problem. And that's what inspired me to write. It was my own story. The, the encouragement of my, you know, my peers that were in my cohort. And then what you find as soon as you do the survey, we tend to feel isolated in these events. If you give pastor a long enough, he's got a war story. He'll tell you. And, uh, and that's just the truth. It'd be my personal experience. And then just my, my doctorate. And then the survey is made, make this finished. So how, how dire would you say is our situation with pastoral burnout in America? So I think the, the best way to say this is to think of it as a conglomeration of stats that no, we can't definitively say here's the number of people burned out in ministry. Mm-hmm. A lot of times too, with generous respect, that's like a, also a prod thing. Ministers at the very end will tell you, right? When it's too late, they'll tell you I'm burned out, right? Yeah. So it's more like, what are some factors that you could be looking for uh, that would help you? So I already mentioned the, the 2014 survey by Lifeway Research that said one in four pastors have been dying or have been admitted who have admitted mental illness. And then one out of, uh, or the one out of two of those have actually been diagnosed and some other ones. I put these on my notes cause they're just so good. I want to make sure you hear them. Uh, in 2015 lifeway research found that 30% of pastors have no document clearly stating what the church expects of them. Mm. And, and just again, so there's, it's just kind of floating out there. Uh, I have no written expectations. 23% leave their positions because of conflict. Uh, at the end, every Barna, go look at it. Just type in Barna and burnout. They don't have anything good to say. <laughs> I'll say that with gentleness and respect. From 2015 to 22, every year, the well-being of pastors has declined. You mentioned the study in the intro since COVID. 38% of Protestant pastors have considered resigning. That's not leading. I want people to understand. That's not switching churches. That is saying, I am putting up my ministry hat and walking away. People don't get that. 38%. 38%. And that, what's interesting is they did that survey like in January of 2021, and it was 29. 
and like six to eight months passed and it had already jumped up to 38, 10% increase in a six month time span. It's incredible. The other one that they just recently released was about the loneliness epidemic. And it was from 2015, 10% of pastors said, I don't really have friends or support. In 2020, that's jumped to 20%. It's doubled. And so you have almost one out of every four pastors would say, other than my wife, I don't have any other friend, whether he's in the congregation or outside the congregation, that I can just pour my heart out to and get any kind of feedback. And then on top of it, I mean, you so nailed it. I tell everybody to re-listen to your intro. You have churches, almost any state convention at any one time, they would say around two to 400 churches are looking for pastors. You have one out of every four pastors who's considering retirement by 2030. There's mm-hmm. not enough young men in the pipeline to fill the vacancies presently and the, the coming retirement. And then my favorite one, and I'll, and I'll hush, okay, is this year, February 25th, according to a New York Federal Reserve, okay, that if you get a bachelor's degree in theology in five years, the median salary is $36,000. It's mm. the lowest, like, which I try to, the, 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 fir, the church of the future belongs to the church that will say, will pay for your seminary I pro- or, or we figure something else out. Yeah. I'm not lying. You'll either have to minimize the qualifications or really assist pastors to be well-trained in theology and biblical exegesis because uh, the numbers aren't adding up. I'm not saying these men have to be rich, but they have to pay their debt <laughs> like they have to. Um, so yeah. those are things I think that make it dire. That, that's scary too because it seems like those the number the number of the number for the salary is going down while the cost of living is going up and the cost of seminary. Yeah, that's I mean, true. You show me with gentleness and respect any of our seminaries that we slash costs this year, <laughs> right? The cost so the cost of living is going up, the cost of seminaries going up, and then yet pastors are getting paid. We haven't kept up. The church hasn't. And, uh, and I'm, and I understand that I'm sympathetic. I mean, money's tight, uh, but you got this to me is like the linchpin, take care of him well, and the rest will follow. Yeah. It really will. Absolutely. Well, we've discussed a bunch of difficulties, challenges going on. Do you have any words of encouragement uh, that you'd like to share with, with pastors, maybe who feel burned out, mm-hmm. maybe with churches who are hearing this? Maybe they're thinking, well, you know, we've got to look into this to take better care of our pastor. Any words that you'd like to share by way of encouragement? So a couple of things. Number one, the fact that this discussion's happening is huge and it's happening more frequently, right? Where pastors, guys, we, we like to keep silent about our problems. It's okay. It's, you're not dirtying your area. Uh, you're, I mean, you're not airing your dirty laundry to get out and go, I am not in a good place. I'm not. Okay. And to say that. So part of this is our fault because we just don't let our members behind the scenes at all. We try to be Superman, you know, the hero. And we, you've got to take the plunge, find you a friend in your church that you can relay these things to. I think a lot of guys would just go, what happens when they move to another church or in seven years, I move to a different church. The relationship's still worth it. 
Go mm. make good friends with people that you can tell them the truth about all of it. Um, and then I, I would tell, I would tell all of these men and members, nobody, nobody is really able to be a 24 seven man, right? That's you true. will, it's just true. It's, it's, it's a nomenclature out there. You need at least one day a week, every week where you go, my phone's going to be off mm-hmm. period. It just is. And if we can't figure out how to delegate responsibilities so that people can still get taken care of, we got a much bigger problem. We got to get that solved. Because as much as I'm pro sabbatical, but what really will resolve the problem is where the man is literally able to practice Sabbath week after week and not on Sunday, right? A Thursday, a Friday during the week, and he is off the grid. That's going to help. And then really, if I can get just one person to go have either a one conversation with their pastor or one conversation with the, the influential leaders and powers that be that say, what can we do to bless our pastor? I, I know uh, just a man might be able to make it a little bit further as long as he knows he has at least one person advocating for his well-being. And that will encourage him. And, and think about this, Brian, too. I'll say this and hush. <laughs> you, criticism, criticism to pastors often come well thought out. Like if you ever noticed that nobody just like on the side, just, you know, digs the pastor. That's usually like, I've been thinking about this for weeks and I'm about to let you have it. Encouragement doesn't ever come that well thought through. It's like good sermon pastor. <laughs> so I'm saying just one time, just one time, write the letter or take him out to lunch and just go, Hey man, I really want to tell you what you mean to me and my family, right? And actually like elaborate on that. That will do his heart some good too. And again, we're not trying to set these men on a pedestal. I just think the reality is we just we just think that's that's all being said and they know that and it's not. And so be intentional and it will really help them. Amen. Dr. Josh Taylor, thank you so much for being on with us. We have got to get you back on. This has been a fantastic. Yeah, I've had fun. <laughs> and we, man, you, if you guys are doing apologetics, I'd love just to sit in one day. I mean, no lie. I love that. Absolutely. Stuff. Anytime, anytime. And, you know, we, we, we'll keep this email correspondence going on. Are you on Facebook? Social media? I am on Facebook. I've already shared this today. That's usually Facebook's my big thing. I like to share stupid, dumb memes. So if people can get past that. That's the big thing. I got to look you up on, on uh, Facebook. We've got to yeah. have it back up. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Josh Taylor, uh, Preach Well Church. Go pick up your copy. It, it may look small, but this is chock full of some great, great material. want to encourage you to check this out. Coming up next week, want to let you know about uh, episode two. We've got Dr. Josh Waltman. He wrote a book called uh, Why Does God Seem So Hidden? So he's going to talk about the hiddenness of God problem and uh, go into that. And if I can be so bold, let you know, as we finished out last season, it hadn't quite published yet, but my book Conversations About Heaven is available now through the same publisher withinstock.com for dr josh taylor this is dr brian chilton saying thank you for joining us on this episode of the billator christie podcast and we hope and pray that you join us the next time that we step into the arena of ideas you've been listening to the bellator christie podcast with brian chilton and curtis evelo this podcast is an exclusive production of bellator christie ministries and is protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved. 
The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christi Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christi Ministries, go to bellatorchristi.com.